Um, this lecture is actually, ooh, sounds very loud, doesn't it? It's marking World Usability Day, but the first error is that actually World Usability Day is next Thursday, so we're a week out. Um, and if you're interested in these kind of topics, then do look up all the events that are happening next week to mark the fact that we're trying to think about the usability of the technologies that we work with on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm just a week early because there are no lunch hour lectures next week. So I'm going to start by asking you all a question. And you're not allowed to shout out the answers at this moment, so I encourage you to please raise your hands when I give, suggest the answer that you most closely agree with. And the question is, who should be held accountable in this incident? And I realize you can't read all the words there, and I've just realized that I can't read them all either. But um, anyway, it's a case of a nurse making an error with a piece of medical technology. Um, the nurse turned off the life support machine at um, a patient's house, and what the article says is that um, he had set up a video camera in his home because he was worried about the care, that he, the quality of the care that he was receiving. And what it says is that footage installed only a few days after this video equipment was, was installed showed the nurse fiddling with the ventilator before a high-pitched warning tone indicates that it's been switched off. And the patient is left fighting for his life for quite a few minutes while she tries to work out how to turn it back on again and cannot do so until some paramedics arrive. So the question to you in this kind of incident, and this one happened about a year ago, is who should be accountable? Who should be, take responsibility for that kind of thing happening? Should it be the nurse herself? How many think, of it, think that the nurse should be held personally accountable for what she did here? Probably about a quarter of you. Who thinks that the agency that employed her and sent her out into patients' homes like this should be held accountable for it? Again, about a quarter, I would say. Who thinks it should be the NHS Trust that employed this agency to do it? Mm, rather fewer of you, I would say, there. What about the designers of the life support equipment? About a third, slightly more. Okay, so you've come to a technology design lecture, and quite a few of you are clearly of the view that the manufacturers should at least be partly held responsible. How, easy, how could they make it so that it was apparently so easy for somebody to turn it off by mistake when it's life support equipment, the clues in what it's called, and yet apparently so difficult to turn it back on again? I'm going to argue that we all make mistakes, possibly not quite of that kind, where we can only assume that she didn't quite understand the, the technology that, we were, that she was working with, but that we, most of us, at least, make mistakes quite often. How many of you have ever either left... I don't need shows of hands just yet, but how many of you have ever le left your chip and pin card in the machine or started walking away and then gone, oops, I forgot that. Yeah, I'm seeing hands there. So, you know, it's an example of something that a lot of us do. We could think of lots more examples of the same kinds of things. 
dialing a phone number. I don't know how well you can see it, but the phone number on the pad and the phone number that's just been entered are subtly different. And so this person is now speaking, is about to speak to the wrong person. Um, I've certainly made the mistake where I have two good friends called Mary, and I phoned the wrong Mary one day. You know, I'd memorized their phone numbers, I just rang the wrong one. That pink load of laundry, isn't it so embarrassing when all your clothes come out a slightly strange shade because you accidentally put something in with the wash? Or that interesting dietary preference of orange juice on your cornflakes. Love that one. Or driving off, leaving the petrol filler cap on the roof of your car. Who in this room has never made any mistake of any of those kinds? <laughs> Talk to you later, Paul. <laughs> so we all have a tendency to make these kinds of errors. And I speculate, at least, that these kinds of errors have been around for centuries. Of course, Neolithic man didn't have chip and pin machines didn't have mobile phones and credit cards and those kinds of things. So probably had a different range of ways that they could make these, make these kinds of errors, possibly throwing the axe on the fire by mistake. Um, but almost certainly people made these kinds of mistakes you know, from the dawn of man. And the ways that the systems that we're working with are designed can often provoke or reduce the probability of error. And I'll illustrate that claim with quite a few examples in a few minutes. The design can make it more or less easy to spot that an error has happened, more or less easy for you to recover from that error, more or less catastrophic in terms of the kinds of consequences that might occur from that error. The photo I've got here is one that's taken from a series from the building of the Chrysler Building in New York. I don't know how many of you have seen those, that series of photos, but some of them are frankly terrifying. People sitting up on beams 50 stories in the air eating their sandwiches with no <coughs> visible means of making sure that nothing bad happens. And sure as, sure as, certainly, whatever, when something bad happens there, the consequences are catastrophic and what's more, it's going to be very hard to recover from. Very hard indeed. But design can help us. A few minutes ago, we had the petrol filler cap on the roof of the car. Well, here's a different car. This one, the petrol filler cap, is attached to the car, so you can't put it on the roof. You might drive off leaving it open, but you're not going to have lost the cap. It'll still be there. Similarly, in supermarkets, the, um, the supervisors will have, generally have the keys for the tills attached to their, their waists so that they can't actually leave the keys behind. They can't leave the till unlocked. That's, again, a physical connector that helps people not to make mistakes. We have other ways of stopping them. Reminders, such as beeps and lights that help people to remember, to see what might be the right thing to do. In this case, at this point, you want to open the door, you don't want to close it, so the open light is put on. Sometimes you can think about the structure of the tasks that you're um, working with. So when people go up to an automatic teller machine, they will typically be thinking, usually, about getting money out. That's the most common reason for people going to these machines. And so 
at one time when I was a little girl, um, that was a very long time ago, um, the ATMs were designed such that it gave you your money and then it expected you to get your card back. And lots of people forgot their cards because they'd gone to get money, they got their money, they walked away. And of course, actually, that's a worse error because your card is, in a sense, a key into your bank account. So forgetting that is actually quite a bad error. So in more modern machines, certainly in the UK, they've restructured it so that you have to take your card back before it gives you your money. And occasionally when I use this example, people will say, I've still managed to forget my money. But that's much less common and because that's the focus of your task. And also, it's much less catastrophic. It just means you've lost 20 pounds as opposed to losing your, the card that, that gives access to your entire bank account. And I added a postscript here of another kind of um, way of avoiding errors, which is active monitoring from, from systems. Um, and this is an example that I saw in the newspaper last weekend, which goes back to the fuel cap example from earlier. Apparently, if you buy the right kind of car, you can now get a fuel cap that recognizes the right fuel as standard. So no more putting petrol in a diesel engine or diesel in a petrol engine. And yes, we have done that. And yes, it's very expensive to fix. <coughs> so we make all these kinds of mistakes. The literature on, on errors of these different kinds often splits it into two kinds. Slips, or you can't see the banana skin properly. There's a very carefully masked banana skin on the back of that slide. Never mind. Um, slips, which are where we know what it is you're meant to be doing, but actually you do the wrong thing. Usually caused because you're distracted, you're not attending properly to what, what it is that you're meant to be doing. And mistakes, which are where you don't know the right things that you need to know in order to make it work. Um, you've misread the situation and interpreted it in a being something different from what it actually is, or you're applying the wrong understanding to that situation. And of course, even with that categorization, life is not completely simple. We're often working with incomplete information, having to make a best guess, looking back sometime later and going, hmm, perhaps that wasn't the best course of action. But at least, you know, a lot of the time, we do actually know what it is we're trying to achieve, and the question is, how do we achieve it? So for the for now, I'm going to focus on slip errors, and I'm going to talk about some of the factors that we've been investigating in our studies about what causes people either to do the right thing over there or to make an error over here. One of the things is how mentally salient something is to you. So I've already given the example of an automatic teller machine and said that people will... If the task is designed appropriately, you're likely to get it right, whereas if the task is designed inappropriately, you're more likely to get it wrong. So the things that you're thinking about are the things that you're likely to get right. Of course, the opposite side of that is that you may be thinking about the wrong things. So for me, one of the classics is the photocopier. You know, you, put the, you walk up to it, you put the original on the glass, you're then thinking about what are you going to do with these copies. Copies come out at the other end, grab your copies, go off and do it, leaving the original where it was. So, you know, there are cognitive distractors. You start to think about something else, and that kind of encourages you to forget about the task that you're in the middle of. 
those are things that are in your head. Similarly, there are things in the outside world that have these similar kind of influence on you. So how perceptually salient something is to you can affect how well it draws your attention to it and helps you to think about doing it. And I've used the example of the train, the buttons that kind of draw your attention to what you might be trying to do next. And yes, I have once gone out of a station because the little thing didn't light up and I didn't realize the doors were open. It was possible to open the doors at that time. But conversely, again, you can get perceptual distractors. Um, and this is, again, one of my confessionals. I've used an example from Google. Um, quite often, I'm reading my email. Somebody mentions an address, uh, a, a date in it. I go to, to look at my diary, which is online. And right next to it, I see Gmail and see that I've got some new messages. So I, rather than going to my diary, I kind of go, oh, I wonder who sent me a message. And then, of course, I forget completely what I was on about and get on with other things, completely forgetting to deal with whatever it was in my diary. This is turning into a confessional, isn't it? Never mind. And finally, there is that kind of combination of yourself and the world and how those fit together. Um, and you're kind of cued by things in the environment um, or by a, t you know, a set of activities that you always do one after the other. Um, and you know, the classic example, again, shows my age. You know, when I was little, there was that little mantra of clunk, click every trip. Um, and the seatbelt is you know, an example of something where almost invariably, when you get in a car, close the door, you put your seatbelt on, both because of the physical environment that you're in that tells you that a seatbelt is a good idea in this context, and also that kind of procedural, I've closed the door, now I put my seatbelt on. So you're very easily reminded by the context that you're in. But again, the context can distract as well as, as helping. Um, and I've chosen the car example again. You know those times when you're driving along and you see somebody else trying to turn right and they're showing you by flashing the windscreen wipers backwards and forwards. Ever seen that? Ever done it? Or vice versa, starts raining and they start indicating. Probably because they're in an unfamiliar car that is where the, the um, indicators and the um, windscreen wiper controls are on the opposite side from the way they are in the car they normally drive. Yeah, that's what you can usually work out. So they're using their normal cues, but they're using them in a way that doesn't work in the very similar environment that they're in at that time. the world was that hard, though, to work with, we'd be making mistakes probably half the time. So it's not all bad news. The remarkable thing is we actually get it right a lot of the time. You know, we all manage to turn up here on the right day at the right time, I assume, because you haven't walked out. Well, a couple of people did, but uh, <laughs> they probably got it wrong. They're the ones who made the mistake. Um, we did a study a while ago of um, people's use of chip and pin machines. When they, were, when they first came in in this country, and there were lots and lots of stories going on around about how many people were forgetting their cards when the new chip and pin machines were, were introduced. And actually, what we found in that study was that there were very few mistakes, or very few people actually really got through to the point of forgetting their cards. And the student who was doing the observations came into my office and went, Anne, this is a real problem. I'm not getting the data I was expecting. I'm finding people are putting their finger on it to remember it or they're holding their wallet next to it until they've put the card back in the wallet, or they're patting their pocket as they leave. 
to make sure they've got their cards. So what we realized then was that people were developing a set of personal resilient strategies that helped them not to forget their cards in these contexts. And in fact, she interviewed a few of them, a uh, few people, uh, as they walked away, making sure ethics didn't, you know, didn't get close enough to um, interfere with anybody's privacy. Um, and a few people were prepared to talk about it and said, yes, I recognize that there was a risk of this, so I worked out how to make sure I didn't make that mistake. And there were a few other people that she interviewed who obviously either had got very close to forgetting their card or actually had forgotten it. And they, when she interviewed them, they said, oh, no, no, it's not a problem, it's not a big deal. So it seems that people who recognize that there's a problem or potential risk will invest in finding ways of sorting that out, and people who don't recognize there's a problem may not invest their effort in the same way. One of my other students has recently been doing st studies about home dialysis machines, and one of the lovely examples that he found was somebody who stuck a little sticker on the um, top of the device there, which says, remember to set sodium to 138. Um, that's actually an example of a resilient strategy that they rem they're reminding themselves to do this every time. It's also, I would suggest, an example of design that could be improved, because why is it that they need to set that every single time that they use the machine. So it represents a design opportunity where the manufacturers could actually improve the design so that that kind of system doesn't, doesn't make those errors in future. Things happen at the individual level. They also happen at the kind of broader organizational level, um, where you know, individuals within an organization can learn in all sorts of ways. So the photo in the top there is from London Underground, where we find that they do a lot of storytelling. If you go down into the control rooms, they're, they're telling you stories about the things that went right and the things that went wrong, and they create hero stories about how Jim sorted something out when there was a big problem on the Victoria line or whatever. And they're reflecting on their experiences on, on how they make, keep the system safe, but also how they kind of optimize performance. That might, it might not feel that way when you're stuck at Arnos Grove, but they are doing that kind of thing the whole time. They're also slightly exploring the system in order to understand it well. So that's an example of kind of things working well at an organizational level where the organization has a culture of helping people to learn, to reflect, and to recover from the kind of minor errors that often happen in that context. Organizational resilience is also evident when people work together well, have good communications, and yeah, observe each other, make sure that each other are doing the job well, where they share responsibility and where they put in barriers to stop little problems turning into big problems. Um, the other example I've got here, which just looks like a big tick from where you're sitting probably, um, is a book about the use of checklists in healthcare, um, where the fact if people have checklists, they can stop little errors turning into big errors by making sure that they're following the procedures pro properly. So, yeah, what have I said so far? Well, even when we know what the right thing to do is, we sometimes do the wrong thing. And that's true of all of us. It's about being human, apart from Paul, um, <laughs> apparently. Um, the design, the design of technologies can help to eliminate such errors. Of course, the examples I've used have been fairly physical ones that I hope we can all identify with because they help to make it very evident 
the same kinds of things happen in the design of the technologies, you know, software systems, but it's much harder to, to, to kind of use those as shared examples. And organizational structures, processes, and cultures can influence the resilience and the effects of errors on how people perform within those organizations. So I've, yeah, mostly so far, we've focused on fairly general things, you know, leaving your filler cap behind or um, pouring orange juice on your breakfast cereal. They've been sources of delay or annoyance, possibly slight vulnerabilities. But of course, very similar issues pertain in safety-critical contexts like healthcare, like control rooms, like tra other transport systems. And the people who are working in those contexts are still human. You don't suddenly become a different person, a different professional, when you walk through the door and put different clothes on to, to denote your professional status. We're still human. And we need to think about how these kinds of errors that happen in our everyday lives impact on or can be avoided within these kind of safety-critical contexts, such as the hospitals. And of course, a big part of hospital work is, is the work of nurses. And typically, they are multitasking. It's not very often a nurse goes in and thinks, oh, today I have one job to do. No, today I have lots of patients to deal with, lots of interruptions, lots of alarms going off, people to feed, people to, um, to administer drugs to interruptions as patients call, etc. And another important thing about nursing work is that it's about caring about people. So the focus of nursing is generally on patient comfort, patient well-being, patient safety, and not really on the technology that they're working with. And also that nurses have little time to reflect on the minor incidents that happen as kind of unremarkable errors throughout their day, and that, but that didn't escalate into anything more important. So I want to tell another story. You know, we had a story right at the beginning. Um, this story is about a nurse called Kimberly Hyatt, um, who worked in a hospital in the States, where shortly after she um, gave a baby an overdose of calcium, um, she gave him about 10 times what, what, he was, what she was meant to have, what the baby was meant to have. A few months later, the nurse committed suicide because she was so upset by what had happened and, and by the incident. And again, all I have to show you is, you know, newspaper articles, websites. And that's kind of significant and kind of important. What we know is that the baby died and the nurse died. We know that there was an investigation carried out, but that investigation has never been made public. In other words, we know very little about what actually happened. I can give you the sensational headline, but I can't tell you what we learned from that. And that, to me, is a problem. So that involved administration of a drug. Drug delivery often involves programming of devices of this, these kinds. I should emphasize these particular ones are examples of current models in the UK. Um, they're not in any way implicated in, the, um, in either any of the incidents that I'm actually talking about. These kinds of devices, though, more broadly, are implicated in quite a lot of incidents. So I'm not going to tell these stories in detail. I think you've had to. That's enough. Um, Denise Melanson um, was in Canada. She received four days' worth of a chemotherapy drug in four hours, and there was no antidote to that, so she died about 22 days later. 
Lisa Norris was in Glasgow and the machine that she was using was misprogrammed. So that she, again, she re received overdoses of chemotherapy drugs. There are incident reports, so, and those two are available on the internet, but they're the exception rather than the rule. So we can find out quite a lot about those two incidents. There are incident reports on a database called MAUD, um, and here's an example of one of those, again, from somebody who, who died. That post-cardiac arrest, the patient was intubated and receiving sedative medication, including fentanyl. The nurse believes she programmed the pump to infuse fentanyl at five cc's an hour, but after an hour, she noticed the bag was empty. So, and we will probably never find out whether she programmed it the way she intended and there was an equipment malfunction or whether actually there was something that went wrong in the programming. These kinds of incidents occur in healthcare for a variety of reasons, of course. You know, the, the ones I've told you about were all um, unintentional errors. There, are, there is the occasional notorious incident where you know, one has to infer at the end of the day that it was actually intentional on the part of, of somebody. You know, the Harold Shipmans of this world become famous because they do terrible things. They can occur because of carelessness, because of equipment malfunction, because of human error, possibly for another, various other causes. Most incidents that happen are complex with a lot of contributing factors, um, but they generally involve people who were doing their best to do the best job they could under difficult circumstances with technology that was designed um, to work as well as possible, but perhaps not as well as it might. Investigating these incidents is challenging. Because, as I've already said, there's little culture of storytelling or reflecting in healthcare, people don't actually articulate the kinds of issues, the kinds of problems that go on there, and also a fear of blame may lead to people not being entirely open and discussing everything that might have gone on in that context. And the investigations of these incidents often take place days or weeks after the incident occurred, by which time it may be very difficult to reconstruct what actually happened in the first place. If we look at the reporting systems, um, there's typically a kind of local level of reporting within the hospitals, and then it goes up nationally in the UK. It's a national patient safety agency who have a national learning and reporting system, um, and then it, the very, very serious ones get reported even higher. And it's interesting to look at the words that are used there uh, within those different levels. So the typical hospital-level reporting focuses on the responsibility, i.e. kind of the accountability of people, whereas the NRLS focuses on openness, on learning. But, of course, you can only learn based on the data that you've already got by that point. And then when you get to serious untowards incidents, it tends to focus on the management of the data, the management of the information, as opposed to the learning that one might take away from that. And in our studies, we found that few of the incident reports at any level contain the details necessary to learn about the design and the interactions that take place with the technologies that are used. Um, so right back at the beginning, I asked who should be held accountable for that first incident. And I proposed some options. Um, the nurse as an individual, the organization, the regional health authority, the designers of the technology. And right now, I would like to ask you, though I'm not sure whether it's practical to have people actually answer directly, but think about the answers for yourselves. 
What other important questions are there? Is, should this just be about who's accountable or what might, else, what might the other important questions about these kinds of incidents and these kinds of errors actually be? Okay, so probably made this slightly shorter than it needed to be. I was so worried about running over time. I guess for me there are two take-home messages that I'd like to project through this talk. First is that slips happen. Uh, we're not all stupid. We're human. We make these kinds of errors. Um, so I encourage you to think about the designs of the systems that you interact with and how they might support you better. Could they be redesigned to help you to not make the kinds of mistakes that they're prone to at the moment? And are there resilient strategies that you can develop uh, to help you to work with the technology more effectively? I've given some examples of that as well in the talk. Um, I would also argue that a blame culture inhibits learning, um, that it makes errors more likely, and it makes their consequences worse. And so we need to think about how we deal with errors in organizational contexts such that we can make those, uh, reduce those as far as possible. Okay, that's the end of the talk. Um, I would like to bring to your attention the, um, particularly the first of the websites that I've put up here, um, www.errordiary.org, is a set of, it's a website, lots of Twitter feeds, where people, it's a confessional site where people are can report the kinds of mistakes that they make in everyday life so that we can start to build up an even richer understanding of the kinds of mistakes, their causes, their consequences, and how we can use those in design. Okay, thank you. Oh, thank I'll you, just Anne. Made one there. Thank you, Anne, for a very thought-provoking uh, lecture. And I hope you're not drinking out of the vinegar bottle. Sorry? <laughs> it's not the vinegar, is it? No, no. no I just <laughs> left the top on and started um, drinking. We, we have time for a number of questions, if you would like. Um, yes, the gentleman here. Could you wait for a second to get the microphone? Because there's a lady coming. Uh, thank you. Is there an optimum value in the provision of warnings and instructions? I'm thinking of the underground where on some trains there is an incessant chatter from the loudhaler about what we are approaching and what to watch and what not to do. And it's not only annoying, it's counterproductive. Has anyone measured the amount and nature of information provided and the efficacy of the provision? Uh, that's a very good question, though. It's not specifically about um, the errors. Of course, the question about you know, how we're informed about the, the state of a system is um, also an important question. Um, and I'm not sure whether anybody's actually done studies, to be honest, of the effectiveness, the timing, the content, those kinds of messages. Of course, if it was a message that actually required people to act in order to avoid something worse happening, then I think it would probably be important that it was clear and timely. But I'm afraid I can't directly answer your question. It's a good one, though. Okay. Um, we have a gentleman at the very back.
Yes, thank you. Uh, I'm blind, and I actually uh, use the uh, speech on the uh, underground, and when they've turned it off, I don't know what's going on. Thank you. Thank you. That's a very important point. Thank you for that. Um, I, I'm going to use my prerogative as a host to ask something, because many of the examples that you've spoken about have to do with our interaction as individuals with uh, technology. Uh, the technology is devised and set into place by industrial companies and then put into the marketplace. Um, the problem that I have, and it, it goes all the way from, uh, from physical technology to software, is there seems to be a real problem with what I would call beta testing. That how many people from major technology and industry providers actually are placed in real life situations to go out and make sure that the equipment functions as the original engineers designed? That's one huge question. Um, and of course the answer is sort of at some level, it depends. Um, so different manufacturers of technology have different approaches to that, that kind of beta testing. Um, some will do a lot of very early testing with the intended user population in controlled settings ahead of time so that by the time the technology is actually um, put on the market, it, it is already at least reliable, if not necessarily always as usable as it, as it ought to be. Um, others tend to put it out and then rely either on um, remote testing. So for a, a lot of websites, for example, they will, there will be multiple versions of the website that are put out and available to users almost simultaneously, and the company will then work out which ones work best, which ones get the best user response. Um, other, other times they will actually put things out and just wait for people to, to give feedback. Um, there's a, also a tradition of doing observational studies in the wild, i.e. out in the real world, um, and some of the photos that I've shown are a result of those kinds of studies. Um, but that is typically a very small number of people within an organisation. I mean, if one asks about proportions of people con concerned with user research as against technology development, there's typically a lot more technology developers within an organisation than there are people concerned with the use, the use of the technologies once they're out. Okay, we, we have time for one last question, if anyone wishes. And so we have a young lady here. Um, you mentioned all the different reasons why nurses and other professionals in the medicine industry are under a lot of pressure and how that impacts on a daily basis on their jobs. Um, I'm wondering to what extent you think there's a need for alternative practices, alternative methods and approaches from different areas of life, different disciplines as well, um, in the medicine profession and workplace, in the NHS in particular, in order to solve some of those mistakes that keep happening. So, I mean, there are quite a lot of procedures that are defined and established within the health service. Um, the extent to which those procedures are or are not followed in practice 
is highly variable. And I think part of the challenge there is to define procedures that, that work for the nursing and other clinical staff, as well as working for the, um, the people who are concerned about accountability. So that actually the procedures that are defined are ones that nurses can, can adhere to and feel inspired to ad adhere to, as opposed to being ones that are imposed by people who don't actually fully understand the job and the, and the context within which people are working. Does that answer you the question, Chief Okay, okay. We, we have time for one very last quick one. There's a lady at the back. Okay. Uh, hello. Um, what's your definition of carelessness? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't have a clear definition at the moment. Um, and, of course, that is an important question about where carelessness starts and where overwork and inattention due to, to excessive pressures finishes. I think that is an important research question to which, I'm, and I'm sorry, I don't have an answer to it at the moment. Okay. okay. I think we should end here because we have another class coming in. Um, thank you all for attending, and we look forward to seeing you at the next lunchtime lecture. <laughs>